miss the Solidarity House Halloween special dropping Friday, October 30th with recipes, a viewing of Phantasm, scary stories, the specter of communism, and more. That's Friday, October 30th, the Solidarity House Halloween special. Now record right on this computer and have lots of airtime on the thing. And I'm, I will be right in there in the conversation, but you can do the initial talking. All right. I guess it's the Zachy talks time. <laughs> Let's, uh, yeah. You're hardly ever on the show. So you're, I think you're welcome to um, uh, be a heavy presence in the conversation. Yeah, you're um, a way hotter commodity than we are as far as yeah. the... <laughs> or a dime a dozen, yeah. <laughs> no, um, oh. But, uh, I, don't, I don't like these self-deprecating terms. <laughs> it's true, especially to assign us value like that in terms of money is seems like uh, I'm... It's I'm, true. I don't know why I would do that. That's a, that is <laughs> definitely self-deprecation. Um, well, maybe I should open it up then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. What okay. is the heuristic yeah. value of the research? So the history on this paper actually goes back to a client that I was working for who had some very odd and interesting questions and was willing to throw some money at getting those questions answered. And so I basically uh, got in touch with Zach and said, hey, do you want to help me get some real answers to this instead of me um, just relying on my more anecdotal experience that I've had in the field as I've been working with different clients over the years and as I visited a lot of communities and whatnot. And so Zach is kind of my go-to research partner for this kind of stuff. And, uh, and so we decided to enter into a partnership with the Foundation for Intentional Community and actually do a survey. And we managed to analyze, we had uh, it sort of mushroomed as we were trying to figure out what we wanted to ask about. It was, you know, initially about decision-making and sort of organizational structure kinds of things. That was where the client had started. But then we very quickly realized that we thought that was related to all kinds of interesting things. And so we have this ginormous set of data and this paper is really just one small slice of analyzing that data. You know, it's, it's weird. Uh, I, I remember you coming to me and asking me about that and me being so excited to do it that like, you know, I, find, I, I spent eight months doing an ethnography of Dancing Rabbits and I was like, now I can do something more systematic, expand outward and look at other communities. And I also remember talking to my, um, my PhD advisor, you know, the person that's supposed to shepherd me through graduate school and finishing my dissertation is, as we had already started on the project, she's like, why are you doing that? You're wasting your time and, and you should be focusing on your dissertation. And in retrospect, you know, four years later, uh, this is probably the most important research that I did while I was in graduate school. And not just because, you know, we have an award now that's, that's, that's coming out, um, but it just, it just speaks so broadly um, that it's not about any one community, but it really gives us a, a, a very good snapshot of the community's movement in general. Um, so that's that's sort of why I see it as as, as so important is just how broad based it is. Yeah, Did, should I should I go on? Should there be more in the academic study of intentional communities? Um, 
there's been up up to the point where this paper came out, there's been sort of one theory about, or one sort of family of theories talking about why do communities succeed or fail? And, uh, you know, the definition of success has largely, it's, it's largely gone, it's gone challenged, but not to the point of, of, you know, proposing a significant alternative. And what I'm talking about is Rosabeth Moss Cantor's classic 1972 book, Commitment and Community, in which she studies hundreds of historical communities, communities that once existed before her time. And she found that, um, you know, commitment mechanisms uh, in communities such as shared religious rituals, um, like giving up of personal income, uh, abstaining from all sorts of worldly pleasures like tobacco and alcohol or sex, um, were these sort of commitment mechanisms that led to the more you had of those, the longer a community would last. And our approach was like, wait, why does the longevity of a community equal its success? I think that that's a bad stand-in for success. And, and you know, uh, Yana and our third author, Don, so we sort of, we, we took this other approach of what if we measure success by how people feel that their community is something that they have a say in, that they share the vision with, and they feel like they are making progress towards accomplishing that vision. And the other aspect of that is we're study we studied uh, living uh, present day communities, and you know, Cantor's data set was all communities that are predominantly communities that no longer existed, and without a crystal ball, we can't really see how long the communities today will continue to exist or when, when they will end. Um, so we don't have, we couldn't answer the question of longevity. And we said, well, why is longevity even important? Communities can exist for, you know, 80 years, hundred years, and, you know, just be total hermits and not have an effect on society. Or people might be there because they don't know of an alternative. Uh, my example that I always think of is the Amana communities. Everybody who came over and formed the Amana communities is a small German community. And for two generations, they didn't speak English. And so people in the community had very little idea of the ability to leave um, or, or the, the possibility of leaving. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily accomplishing uh, their sort of religious uh, intentional goals. Uh, so we built a 13 question scale uh, uh, that we, that we uh, asked the uh, communities uh, responding to answer is rank the following from strongly disagree to strongly agree. My community's decision-making process is, is functional, is complicated, has served us well, uh, is fair to all involved, reflects our common values and so on and so forth. So it's different aspects of like our community's decision-making process, does that allow us to have buy-in? Does it make it feel like we're accomplishing uh, the objective of, of the point of the community and why, why someone would join that? Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we, we got some pretty interesting results. Yeah, and I think one of the things that was really intriguing to me that I wasn't really thinking about when I went into this process with Zach was that you know, a lot of the studies that have been done with intentional communities, as Zach said, you know, focus on historical communities that don't exist anymore. And 
we don't know how many hundreds of projects tried to get off the ground and didn't back then. And so we have this snapshot of these like very well-known communities that were studied enough or somebody was diligent enough about their record keeping that we still know something about them that we can try to analyze like 100 years later or 200 years later. And that's a really different thing than actually like being sort of in like a, a snapshot of a moment of the movement as a whole. And so we sent the survey out to uh, you know, over a thousand communities that are that were in the communities directory at the time, and got uh, 301, I think, responses from communities. And some of those were duplicates, where two people from a community were responding. And so we ended up, though, with I think it was 190 communities uh, that are represented. It's a little bit more. It was 215. I misquoted you the other day when we were talking about this. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I misinformed you. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and like, I don't know how many communities Cantor's study were taking into account, but it, I will bet that it was nowhere close to 215. And we had communities in there that we had like five different categories that we broke it down into of like how long the community had been around. And some of them were like starting at zero, like they were not even landed yet. And so I feel like we got this really, um, complete snapshot in terms of like how long communities have been around. It was from like zero to 80 years that the communities existed, you know, were in existence at the time that we were doing the study. And, um, and I find that really interesting and intriguing and would love somebody to like take up, you know, all of that data that we never got around to analyzing is still there. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting to me in Zach and Don's orientation was this idea of like rethinking success. You know, I lived at Dancing Rabbit for, um, you know, cumulatively over nine years with the different stints that I had done in that community. And in that time, a lot of people came through Dancing Rabbit, were strongly influenced, and then went out and did these really interesting things that sort of built on, you know, somewhere between like three weeks and three years that they lived at Dancing Rabbit and were participating in that community. And to me, that's a kind of success that doesn't have anything to do with how many years Dancing Rabbit has been in existence. It has to do with what our influences in the world. And so I really was excited about kind of blowing up that definition of a success for a whole bunch of different reasons. And, uh, and so it's really interesting to me that we ended up going in the direction that we went in. Yeah. And, and Cantor's definition of, of success via longevity is, is kind of arbitrary too. Um, because she set it at 25 years. So if you're over 25 years, you're successful. If you're under 25 years, and it's you know roughly around the, the length of a generation, but charismatic leaders can live longer than that or shorter than that. And really, it's um, you know it, it, it in a lot of ways it's arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And I like I like as you you said that we we captured communities that are like in the like just launching stage. I wonder how many communities were sort of lost to history that weren't ever recorded in any sort of written documents that survived that were omitted from Cantor's research that we were able to capture. You know, some of the stuff that's in our research is probably going to eventually get lost to history uh, that they ultimately won't succeed. That's very interesting. Well, and I think about like, I feel like one of the most historically influential communities that a lot of people are paying a little more attention to now is the Paris Commune. And 
was it four months? You know, like they wouldn't have even been on Cantor's radar as like a success. And yet that project has been tremendously influential and still is. And so, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, that kind of like influence vector. And I, and I don't know that we did a lot, you know, with that piece of it, you know, we were more studying people's lived experiences with it. But I think if somebody has had an, a satisfying experience, you know, by the definition that we sort of worked up with that, they are much more likely to take that experience and have it change them and, you know, end up being an influencer in some way out in the wider world. And that's really interesting to me. Let me ask one sort of devil's advocate question uh, on that note. Um, Surely, uh, and I think that it doesn't seem controversial to me uh, to agree that, um, Longevity is not a sign of a community's success necessarily, and that lack of longevity is not intrinsically a sign of lack of success, but surely if a community can't last long enough um, and that consistently there are certain types of communities that don't or whatever, that's a, isn't that a sign of, of something about the weakness of the community though? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's why I was interested in the sort of patterns that we were seeing. And so we know some things coming out of this study about what uh, what factors build in deeper satisfaction with community. And I think that that is probably one of the things, you know, uh, setting aside forces of like, you know, economic struggle and that kind of stuff that I think is really real. And I don't think any individual community has the capacity to like, like they can't just change our economic system, for instance, you know, by themselves. And so setting aside those kind of factors, I do think some of what we learned are things that are pointing to factors that I would love to do some follow-up study at some point and figure out like, so do those things really lead also to longevity? Yeah. And to, and to speak to the, like, you know, what forms work and what forms don't um, and, and, you know, all of the different things that causes, cause communities to either work or to fail. Um, you know, it, it just seems like, like commitment mechanisms, at least the way that Cantor measured them are too simple. Like, uh, and, and is, you know, I think Yana uh, sort of alluded to like, you know, the, the larger social forces that exist are going to dictate what works and what doesn't. And so, you know, you see in a lot of her data and a lot of other historical data on communities that like religion and commitment to a religious practice, you know, even as, even as weird as um, like Cyrus Teed, who believed that the earth was hollow and we were living inside of it, that the earth was a sphere, but we were living inside the sphere. And he managed to gather a whole bunch of people and follow his crazy weird religious belief. Um, Were you fascinated, curious, uh, drawn into kind of what the worldviews that guide people's praxis about living together? Well, I think that, oh, sorry. Um, I, I mean, I think that speaks to where I was, what was heading in general, that the world has changed and the worldviews that people create in reaction to the prevailing culture are important that, uh, you know, a lot of this historical data is on religious communities, because especially you're talking about with the Mormons, uh, that's the formation of a new religious movement, uh, hot on the heels too of uh, the Second Great Awakening was a very informative sort of um, part of the milieu. 
Uh, whereas today that, that, that sort of religious drive, we have, you know, a fervent, uh, you know, evangelical religious movement and uh, evangelical communities that form out of that. But today's communities are, are, um, God, what was the uh, Smith called it eclectic. So there's a lot of different reasons why communities form and it's not as, you know, it's not as uh, singular. There's not as, you know, we can't just categorize it either, as either religious or political like we could uh, for, for Cantor's uh, research. We have to categorize it in myriad different ways. Uh, there's LGBT intentional communities. There's racial justice intentional communities, environmental justice in, intentional communities, along with religious and political and all of these other different types. Um, so speaking, speaking, I think, to... Uh, I mean, the the simple answer to your question is the answer we already gave, that people are reacting to the times and trying to create an alternative vision for the times. Um, and to also speak back to uh, what Yana was saying about, you know, people come and go from, an, from a community. Uh, communities are, are uh, like nexus points or nodes for larger movement activity of, of other kinds, whether that be social movements, cultural movements, um, and that, that speaks to uh, our friend Josh Lockyer's uh, theory of transformative utopianism uh, that, that, you know, uh, intentional communities are just a, a central point through which these networks flow of, mm -hmm. of people with alternative ideas and alternative uh, lifestyles. Uh, mm -hmm. I, hope, I hope that answered the question all right. But yeah, part you of it. Say something. Well, I, I think the other part to it is that I think that we were... And part of this was driven by the fact that I had started this out with specific practical questions from someone that sort of propelled us into doing this project. We were much more focused, I think, on practices and what was actually happening internally with the community, or at least those were the parts that, that I remember most distinctly out of, you know, what came out of it. And, you know, and I've spent the last you know, over a year working on another big writing project that's really focused on cooperative culture. And so, so I put everything through this kind of lens of culture and of how culture and practice and experience feed on each other. And one of the interesting things for me and the, the sort of number one thing that I took away from this and that I've been talking about in my workshops and that I've been talking about in, you know, my own like writing and speaking work is that the, like we identified the things that had the most significance to them that fed into satisfaction. And they were not, two of them were things that I was sort of expecting or could have anticipated. And one of them wasn't. And those three things, if I'm remembering correctly, were income sharing, which was the one that like, I didn't expect that at all. Uh, mandatory conflict resolution and some kind of egalitarian decision-making. Those right. things are the interesting thing to me, the things that connect them together is that from a cultural standpoint, those things are about as un-American in terms of like, if you think of Americanism being like individualism <laughs> and competition, yeah. like they're about as polar opposite from that as you can get. And that makes them scary for people. And it also though, when people take that jump into actually creating a system around themselves based on those things, that's actually where the real juice is in the movement right now. And I think that's a really, really interesting thing. Yeah. To add on to what you're saying, the, the thing that was most interesting to me about what we found as the, as the like significant factors was that 
so there's a difference between whether or not a, a community has an egalitarian sort of governance um, structure as part of its like foundation and imagined uh, self and, you know, it's whatever foundational documents that outlines how they're supposed to self-govern. There's a difference between that and how it happens in practice. Yeah. And the practice didn't seem to matter as much as it was the fact that the community had that structure set up as an ideal. Uh, that was our, we found, um, so practice did have an effect, but it didn't pass our uh, statistical significance test. And the strongest thing was, does it have an egalitarian governance structure, regardless of whether that structure is functional and working as it should, um, does it have that structure uh, that people ideally could plug into? Because, I mean, everybody who's tried to do consensus decision making knows that it, you know, it's tough and it fails often. But the idea that that's something that the community is built on and is working towards, even if it's not fully realized, made all of the difference, not all, like a huge chunk of the difference in that satisfaction scale that we created. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that is more interesting to me about studying current communities than historical ones is that, you know, we can look at both what we are striving for and what's happening on the ground. And I think both of those things matter. And, you know, with a historical record, it's like you sort of get what happened and you get to study that, but you don't get sort of what people's ambitions for culture change and social reinvention are. And we were able to sort of, you know, tease apart a little bit what the differences are between those two things, but also people striving for something different and better is a huge factor, I think, just in like life satisfaction in general and, you know, in this case in communal satisfaction. Uh, I, I agree. The stronger, the, the stronger, like the countercultural vision, like to me, having a strongly articulated vision that people have the opportunity to buy into, that's what make that's to me what will make a community successful is, is having that vision and feeling like the sense of agency within it when people join. It's mostly been one of the things that has just fed into my increasing interest in asking questions through the framework of culture and um, you know, it's certainly one of the things that ha that helped drive the book that I just finished and, you know, is certainly driving what I'm interested in looking at. Um, but I'm really interested in the intersection between uh, communal spaces and broader culture spaces. And that continues to be a very interesting uh, interplay for me. Oh, well, I, I definitely second all of that. That remains very, uh, a very interesting uh, uh, path that I would also like to go down um, the the interplay between intentional communities and the larger culture that actually sort of uh, speaks a lot to my dissertation. But in terms of of going forward from this paper in particular, it's interesting that you talk about culture because I want to talk about theory. And I've been working on a paper, so please nobody who's listening steal this idea from me because I, I I swear. Uh, I, I've been working on it for like a year and it's probably needs another year or two before it's ready. But I, I uh, have been working on a, a paper that argues intentional communities serve as uncertainty reduction mechanisms that while like there is often uncertainty about the survival of the community or uncertainty about interpersonal relationships within, uh, within a community, you know, between members that 
uh, people join as a way of reducing their uncertainty about navigating the world. And I'm, I'm relying on uh, a uh, psychological concept that I, I have not, um, I, I don't usually look towards psychologists, but there's this concept called, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, ent entitativity. Uh, so like the entity NIST, which is like uh, the entitativity of a, of an intentional community is much higher. So you get this sense of like groupiness that there is a group to which someone belongs and that reduces the uncertainty about navigating the world once you feel like you have a place that belongs and supports you. So it reduces your uncertainty about interacting with the world writ large once it feels like you have some degree of certainty about your place in it. Um, and, and this is purely a, a theory paper, so I'm trying to wrap together, you know, trying to wrap together Cantor and all of her critics uh, as well as some of the more recent theories about social transformation um, and how social, uh, sorry, um, intentional communities, like uh, their existence on the landscape happens in waves that we see periods of heightened social uncertainty and then a wave of intentional communities form. So I'm trying to wrap together all of these disparate ideas in, into the sort of um, social psychological concept of why people might join. And I'm interested to get feedback and what you what you think about about that as well. But that's I, I took I pivoted from okay, knowing what we know now about um, you know why communities succeed and fail. This this might give us an indicator of why people join and why why they stay. Yeah, and I want to toss in one other piece that's related to what you were just saying, Zach. So I do every once in a while I do some quick and dirty numbers looking at the. Um, the intentional communities directory. And I just did um, my latest round of that this morning and um, established communities in the directory, 21% of them identify as communes right now. And 27% of forming communities identify as communes. And I think, you know, when we're talking about security, I would love to get some data for how much the bump that we're seeing right now in groups that identify as communes is about increasing economic insecurity for people and how much they're looking toward communes to fill that need. That's absolutely part of why Solidarity Collective exists. And, you know, we're one of those groups that I guess we're now, we've crossed the line into established at this point, um, <laughs> but we weren't up until pretty recently. Yeah, the, the uh, um, listeners can't see it, but I'm nodding vigorously to the point about uh, uh, economic insecurity being a source of newly forming communities. That's absolutely the case. Now the wave, the wave like family of theories focuses on a really obscure um, economic concept called chondritive waves that sort of predicts every 70 to 80 years, there's a regular and predictable pattern of, of economic mm -hmm. disruption. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an economist, so I don't want to dive into that. But I think um, the larger point is that when there are economic or social crises, which now we have both prolonged period of, of you know, widening economic inequality. And on top of that, you know, uh, uh, political division um, and and all sorts of, uh, you know, riots in the streets and, and protests and, you know, armed right wing groups. Uh, it's no wonder that people are going to look towards communal living as as one of many possible solutions that they that they could enter into. 
and how does it feel to kind of um, accomplish this, uh, you know, in the, in the sense of being part of this ongoing dialogue about uh, this very important uh, subject matter. So, so vindicating because um, this, <laughs> like I said earlier, my advisor didn't want me to do this project, but I, I sort of recognized how important it could be uh, as well as uh, the, uh, before it got published in um, let's see, sociological spectrum is, is the venue. It got, re it got rejected by another uh, article or another journal uh, that said our sample size wasn't large enough and they just, you know, gave us the runaround for like six months before ultimately rejecting us. And it feels vindicating to know that people recognize this as a significant piece of work, even if, um, you know, there's other academics who just sort of, um, I don't want to, I don't want to say something too negative about academics, not uh, being attached to sort of real world concerns. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm an academic. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I felt I felt like, you know, I wasn't contributing and I was being told I wasn't contributing the right thing or in the right way. And to have uh, a community of peers say that, yes, uh, I, I have made a contribution uh, feels vindicating that I stuck with it, that we stuck with it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mean, and I'm really happy about it. I, you know, the the award doesn't. I feel like have as much significance in my life because I'm not an academic and it is an academic association. Uh, but one of the things that's been fun being at the edges of the communal studies association world for a long time now is seeing there be more respect within that world for practitioners and actually existing communities and seeing research in those areas getting more attention within that has been really great to see and it's incredibly valuable. What the Communal Studies Association does is incredibly valuable for me as a practitioner and seeing that come a little more full circle has been really great. I want to add two other things to that. One, uh, we have to give thanks. We, we talked about uh, Don very briefly, but we have to give thanks uh, to our third author, Don, because this is a paper that relies pretty heavily on statistics. And he's a stats guru. He kept us honest about the data and what we could or couldn't say based on what was in the data and made sure that we ran the significance tests um, and interpreted it correctly. Uh, so the other thing that feels good is uh, being able to work functionally as a research team, that, that having a good team uh, be part of it was, you know, we, we want a cooperative culture. So we not only talked about cooperative culture, we, we sort of lived it as well in doing this. And second is Yana is probably not going to brag on herself for this. Uh, and, and you can edit it out if she doesn't want to brag on herself about this, but she is now the second person in the history of the communal studies association to win both the book and the journal awards. Um, and, and, uh, so this is, I think even more it's of an It's not too shabby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a, not even an academic, <laughs> like I don't even do this really. So yeah. yes, well, this would absolutely not have happened though. If, um, I was not going to get a paper published on my own. And so, you know, what Zach is saying about the team, I think is really powerful for this one. So yes. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Dom. Thank you.